Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Product risk management, very deep topic, and one that's really important to those of us in the medical device industry. Good news is um, we start to skim that surface a little bit, get into some of the nuances, some of the details. And joining me on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast is Ed Bills. Ed is uh, a longtime consultant in the medical device industry. His distinction and, and importance with respect to risk management is he's part of the committee that actually writes the 14971 and 24971 uh, companion standards. So um, definitely somebody that's in the know on risk management. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. Pretty excited about this one. I think it'll be obvious here in a few moments, but risk management, man, this is a topic that certainly in 2021 is is something that I think, to be quite honest, we as an industry, as a medical device industry, still need to improve upon. I think we're still struggling with this a little bit. And good news for you all, we have a risk management expert joining us on the Global Medical Device Podcast today. Help me welcome Ed Bills. Ed, welcome. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate the opportunity to speak today and uh, maybe to help clarify some thoughts in, in people's minds about the Medical Device Risk Management Standard, ISO 14971, and its European counterpart. Ian, ISO 14971, and also the uh, technical report that provides the guidance for the standard. Ian, ISO TR 24971, and the ISO version of that same document. Right now, all those documents are identical to the uh, base document. So we'll probably talk a little bit about what's coming up, hopefully. For sure. And folks, I'm, I'm going to give you a heads up right now. Risk management as a topic, as I'm sure you're probably well aware, is very deep. And we're not going to cover all the depths of risk management in this episode, but we'll hit some of the highlights. And, and Ed, maybe there's an opportunity uh, for us to do follow-on conversations uh, on this topic or, or others at, at some point down the road. So I guess maybe a first point just to start with, I mean, 14971, the the current version 2019 it is surprising to me that a lot of folks aren't even aware of that so how how can we help them uh, promote the awareness of, of things like this beyond above and beyond you know doing things like this any any thoughts or ideas i mean why are people not aware that the newest standard is out there well i think covid got in the way for one thing although i have been doing and some of my fellow members of the technical committee that created the standard have been doing a lot of of uh, presentations and uh, uh, so on, uh, and now all over the, the uh, virtual uh, method uh, to inform people. But it, as you say, it hasn't gotten out. I uh, have written some articles as well, and I was pleased to see that the first in a series that I wrote for Medical Device Online on the risk acceptability criteria and the policy for risk acceptability was viewed by several thousand people. Yeah. And, you know, that is astounding in itself. But as you say, uh, I had, for instance, a uh, email from someone 
yesterday asking some questions that showed that uh, that individual wasn't aware of everything that was going on. So yeah, um, we just got to keep doing things like you're doing today. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And and the other thing I, I think that uh, is important to remind folks, you mentioned it in the intro, the guidance document, the 24971-2020 is also out there. And, and congratulations to you and the team. I, I I really, really enjoyed, and I know it's maybe weird for some folks to think, how can somebody enjoy this? But I really enjoyed uh, the 24971 document. I think it is so much better than, and then the previous version was was great. Don't mishear me, but I think it is so much better than than that previous version. It provides so much, many more, um, so much more context and so much more guidance to folks. So congratulations to you and the team on that too. It's a, it's a really great companion document. Well, we had some great leadership in our convener and uh, and also our bosses. Our technical committee is a joint working group under IEC and ISO. And under ISO, it's um, TC210, which is the uh, people responsible for the uh, quality management standard. Right. 1340, yeah, right. And uh, on the IEC side, it's a 60601 team, uh, SC62. So we've got some some great uh, people out there that are helping us through this uh, process. And and the one thing that has been consistent through the life, and I've been on the on the joint working group since uh, 2000. But what's been consistent is people have wanted more guidance, more guidance, more guidance. Not changing the uh, the process. We've always consistently said, yeah, the process is pretty good, but we need to understand it better. Yeah. And so uh, that was the the reason for the 24971 document, because what we did is we took the guidance that originally appeared in 14971, and, and people didn't understand the difference between requirements and guidance. And we took almost all of the guidance out and placed that in the 24971. So it's really clear hopefully, that the information that's in 24971 is information to help you decide how to implement the uh, risk management standard in your uh, particular uh, company and based upon the devices you have and the markets you serve and those kinds of things. The only guidance that still appears in the standard is NXA, which is the rationale. And I will say this, if you haven't read the rationale, as well as the forward, the introduction, and the scope of 14971, you don't have a complete understanding of the standard. Annex A, for instance, is the rationale, the reasoning behind each of the requirements in the standard. And it gives you a much better view of, of how this thing came to, to pass, the history behind how we got there. Annex B is uh, a flowchart which appeared originally as Annex B in the 2007 edition and was expanded in this edition to include a table that shows you how the clauses moved from the 2007 to the um, 2019 version. And, and there's, there's a point there I might want to talk about. There's a lot of confusion about the ISO document, which is the worldwide standard and some regional 
standards like the EN ISO 14971. The requirements are identical in all those documents. That is um, the 2019 version of the ISO standard. The requirements, which are clauses one through 10, are identical to the EN version clauses one through 10. There are no differences between the requirements. The differences uh, might appear when the harmonization process in Europe is uh, finally uh, put together for the MDR and the IVDR, such that a harmonized standard will appear, in, hopefully in this year in 2021, that will have two Z annexes in it, ZA and ZB. Those will be the only differences between the ISO version and the European version. And those two uh, annexes, the ZA for the MDR and ZB for the IBDR, will have correspondence tables in them that talk about where the standard covers the requirements in the general safety and performance requirements, which are covered in, in the nine items in Annex A or Annex 1, Chapter 1 of the MDR and the IBDR. So yeah, those those things, and, the, and there will be no content deviations, unlike the uh, confusion that occurred in the 2012 <laughs> ENISO uh, 14971. Uh, so say you said Z or Z annexes, and, and my heart rate uh, elevated there for a moment, because I know back in 2012, the EN ISO 14971 2012, those, the infamous, now infamous uh, Z annexes created a ton of confusion uh, in the industry. So I'm, I'm glad that at least from a standard perspective that that confusion has been cleared up. Uh, I know we still have some work to do within practice and in, in device companies to clear up that confusion. And hopefully this conversation is another piece to help the industry with a little bit of clarity and education and understanding. Um, the other um, reaction that I'm thrilled to, that you shared as well is I think a lot of folks don't understand. I think they don't understand standards, how they get created and revised and that sort of thing. And I'm, this isn't necessarily uh, a tangent that I want to explore, but but I think the encouraging thing that that I want folks to understand about fourteen nine seventy one and is the group that has been working on this standard has also been working on thirteen forty five. And as Ed mentioned, there's a, a joint working group. The, the folks that are working on IEC 60601 is also involved. So this this is good from a harmonization standpoint as well. So that's that's exciting. Yeah, the, the reason the risk management standard came about in the first place was when the third edition of 601 was being written, and I was on that committee too. We were finding that rather than writing a prescriptive document, which would never meet the advancing requirements of technology, we had to come up with a method of addressing those uh, issues that appeared in it, and risk management was decided to be the way of doing it. At the same time, there was some work going on in ISO about risk, and the two organizations decided to get together and create a joint standard, which is uh, 14971. Although it's titled ISO 14971, it is, in fact, a joint document of the two organizations and can be applied to 
electromedical devices as well as non-electrical medical devices. Uh, and um, uh, we worked hard and long. The 2019 version, we started on it in June of uh, 2016 with a meeting in Tampa. And we were given the direction from ISO and IEC to revise the two documents, 14971, which was in its second edition at that point, and 24971, which uh, was in its first edition, and figure out how to address the informative issues. And then also, uh, the first thing was, do not change the risk management process. Uh, those four steps that are there, risk or a hazard identification, risk evaluation, uh, risk control, and uh, monitoring, those steps need to continue and maybe be improved, perhaps, but we need more guidance on this thing. And so our primary goal was to improve guidance. We met three times a year face-to-face through uh, 2016, 2017, 2018, and 2019. At the last meeting, just to give you an idea of the breadth of this, uh, we met in London at the uh, Royal Medical Society, I think it was, building in London. We had 63 people from around the world. Every part of the world was represented in that meeting, and there had been participation and meetings, uh, the on-site meetings that were held, were held in every part of the world. We were in South America and Asia and and uh, Europe and and U.S., uh, North America, South America as well. So there was worldwide participation in the revision uh, that you see today. And um, as I've been involved in uh, all but one of the, the editions, the first edition, there was also an amendment uh, people don't know about. 2003, there was an amendment. That, we, that was the first one I was involved in. So there's been a lot of work over the years, and it's got to be a pretty good document now. Yeah. but I mean, I, mean, and I think it's impressive that 63 people are involved in the process. And, you know, that, you know, in a relatively short period of time, that group of people was able to revise the standard and create such a fantastic guidance document. So, you know, that's, that's, that shows that there's a lot of, um, I, I think, interest in, in this industry. You know, there are a lot of people out there who, like Ed, who are involved in, in trying to provide clear, actionable requirements and details and guidance, uh, especially on a topic that's so important like risk management. Well, just to to show you the interest, even the regulatory bodies, uh, the FDA was a very active participant, um, and um, the IMDRF uh, was uh, was sitting on the sidelines watching us. But it was more than sixty three total people, John, because when we had a meeting in a particular region of the world, uh, there were a lot of people that would show up at those meetings that weren't able to go perhaps to other areas of the world. So um, I'm sure there were well over 100 wow. people that were involved in, in the total uh, project over time. Wow. Um, as well as the national committees around the world that, uh, that had input too. So um, there's a lot of uh, work that was done by a lot of people mm-hmm. uh, to come up with this standard. And just to show you um, how well it was accepted, 
is the FDA uh, recognized the standard within days of its being released. And uh, if you look at the uh, recognized standards database, it says they recognize the entire standard based upon its uh, technological uh, and I forget what the other word was, uh, uh, capabilities. Um, BSI uh, recognized the standard as the state-of-the-art medical device risk management standard. The uh, 2012 version in Europe was withdrawn by Sen and Senelec uh, with the publication of the 2019 version in the favor of that, uh, that edition. Now, I don't know from a regulatory perspective what impact that has in Europe, but I also know that the 2012 to the MDR and IBDR because it was not harmonized to those right. documents. And it is in conflict with some mm-hmm. of the requirements. Um, and just to give you one uh, area, uh, the uh, 2012 edition said you could not use information for safety, I think, or whatever the instructions for you. Right, right, right. I think it's information for safety, yeah. The, uh, the 2012 edition was wrong, and it was recognized in the MDR that it was wrong. The new regulation was issued in Europe explaining in Annex 1, uh, Chapter 3, how information for safety can be used as a risk control measure. So um, the regulators uh, recognized that the the uh, standard was incorrect. And the Z annexes in the standard were incorrect and, and um, uh, made it clear in the new regulation that that is a risk control. Um, so um, there, there was a lot of back and forth on this. And one of the things that we did as, as a joint working group is we attempted to, as much as possible, incorporate the, um, the regulator's thoughts in uh, approaching risk management in this version of the standard. For instance, you'll find in Clause 10, which is uh, production and post-production information, that that was developed to align with the post-market surveillance requirements of both the FDA uh, and uh, and the EU. Uh, and uh, it also aligns with uh, 1345's uh, Clause 8 on uh, monitoring and improvement. Um, and uh, there's a another document we can talk about, which was uh, just recently released, which is ISO TR two hundred four one six on post market surveillance, which is a uh, technical report that connects together thirteen four eighty five and fourteen nine seventy one approaches to post market surveillance and how that um, that supports that uh, concept of of uh, that uh, arena. Okay, and I might point out that Clause 10 is the biggest change that occurred in the standard. Um, there was more happened there uh, than anywhere else, and I happen to be on that team um, that did that portion of it. Um, we based that, as did 1345, on an earlier document, the GHTF Study Group 3 and 18, which is the uh, CAFA guidance document that GHTF created. And IMDRF has continued to support. But if you really want to know a lot about post-market surveillance, 
you can look at that GHTF document and it has a ton of Yeah, it's good. It. It's really it's good. Really good document. And that's where we got our uh, starting point from there. And uh, also from some of the things the regulators were asking for uh, in, in that arena. Because it's important that you keep the risk management file up to date throughout the product life cycle. And that's the part that we're talking about here, the clause 10, which helps you keep your uh, product as safe as possible through this part of the process, keeps everything up to date and uh, uh, is an active now process as opposed to waiting for the phone to ring with a complaint. Now you are required by the standard to actively go out and seek information about your product uh, and how it's performing in the field and to keep that uh, risk management file up to date and to make sure uh, that you've identified all the hazards, that uh, you have evaluated all the risks associated with those hazards. And if something's changed, you've updated it. And as well, you have uh, kept everything up to the state of the art. And state of the art and benefit and uh, some other words are, are definitions in the standard. And one of the things I, uh, one of my pet peeves right now is definitions. Um, in my <laughs> 27 years of working in standards now, one of the things I found out is uh, we have to, to use uh, uh, definitions so that we all understand what we're talking about. That's tricky and, too. Uh, yeah. For instance, uh, 1345 has a uh, has the same definition for risk as uh, 14971 and the MDR. However, 1345 and the MDR do not define harm, which is an important aspect yeah. um, to the uh, definition in the risk management standard. And uh, for their uh, reasoning, was so they could slip regulatory compliance in there as well. So the risk of regulatory compliance is, is one of their themes. And, and uh, we don't include that because 14971 is only a product safety standard. It does not address business risk. It does not address project risk. And we want to keep those separate because we want the emphasis to be on product safety. Absolutely. That's what this standard is. It's a product safety standard, and it doesn't cover those other areas. There are other documents that cover those, such as for regulatory compliance now, uh, 1345 uh, covers that, and, uh, and uh, so does uh, MDR and IBDR. All right. I'm going to pause for one moment. I want to remind folks we're talking with Ed Bills. Ed is a uh, consultant for the medical device industry. He's an expert on risk management. Uh, as you heard him share, he's been involved with standards process for, for 27 years, uh, very involved with risk management standards. So certainly uh, talking to somebody that knows his stuff on risk management. And certainly if you have questions or comments, feel free to uh, connect with Ed. He's, he's a very prolific writer. Uh, you, you'll come across his content uh, in a number of places, um, and not the least of which is LinkedIn. So be sure to check him out. 
Um, always had every time I read something that Ed writes, I'm like, that's that's a, a valuable tidbit that uh, is really important for us to understand. So be sure to, to follow Ed on on LinkedIn and and his writing. I also want to re- remind you all that uh, Greenlight Guru, we're here to help. Um, we have the only medical device quality management system software platform in the industry. It's been designed only for the medical device industry by actual medical device professionals, and within the platform. We have workflows to help you manage your design and development that integrates with risk management workflows that allows you to treat your risk management file as a total product lifecycle set of documents and records and and events, ties directly to quality events. So if you have customer feedback or complaints or CAPAs and and things of that nature, you can link all of these things very seamlessly through a couple of clicks of buttons within the platform to keep everything connected. And I think, as Ed highlighted, it is very important that we treat risk management as a total product lifecycle process for our products. And and I think this is one of those areas where a lot of companies struggle. So if you need a little bit of help with that, I would encourage you to go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. We'd be thrilled to have a conversation to learn about your needs and see if there might be some ways that we might be able to help. All right. So, Ed, a couple things I want to... That that last little bit that you shared, a couple things that I want to highlight. Uh, First, I think it's really important. I don't want to skim over this too quickly, but from day one, FDA recognized this as a consensus standard. And I, I get this question from time to time, like, you know, what is the adoption period and, and things of that nature? Is my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, that for a standard such as 14971 2019, there really is no adoption period. It is state of the art as we know it in uh, and, and this moment in time. So I think if my interpretation is correctly, at least from, from a, an FDA perspective, the expectation is that companies adapt to the 2019 version of the standard because that's considered state of the art. Is my thinking accurate? Uh, well, not exactly, John. Uh, if you uh, look at the recognized standards database uh, at the FDA site, uh, you will find that they said that um, the uh, uh, they will accept pre-market notifications and uh, pre-market applications until uh, <laughs> it's a Christmas gift, December 25th of uh, 2022. So um, they will allow you to continue with the projects that are already underway with the 2007 edition until um, the December 25th date. Okay. Um, So they have one thing. Um, There's not a harmonized standard yet for the MDR and IVDR, although uh, the uh, uh, EC did uh, uh, release a draft version of a new standardization request. The original one was rejected by the European standards bodies, Sen and Senelec. So they went at it again and their uh, comment period closed December 13th. So I'm hoping to see a new um, uh, standardization request go to Sen and Senelec from the EC um, soon so that we can start the harmonization process in Europe. And uh, what that will mean is the, you can you can use harmonized standards to meet the uh, the requirements of the MDR and IVDR. Okay. Uh, in the meantime, you're on your own. It's uh, <laughs> between you and your notified body, right? Um, and that's why I mentioned that uh, BSI has recognized uh, the 2019 version as state of the art. 
So you can um, can use uh, that uh, to cover at least part of the requirements in the MDR. And uh, you and the notified body will uh, negotiate on where you fall short on the rest of it. Okay. Um, and everybody's, you know, all over the place on this. It's, uh, ISO says uh, there should be a three-year transition period for standards. The same goes for IDC, and they will withdraw them. But since Senate like already already withdrew the 2012 version, it's confusion at best. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was going to be my my next comment. I'm glad you you mentioned that. Uh, I think this is another myth that's out there is, uh, in the industry, unfortunately, is that the, the 2012, EN 2012 version is still applicable. But to your last comment, it is not applicable. It's been withdrawn. So I think that's a key point for, for folks to realize who, who may still be thinking, oh, the 2012 version is, is still okay. It's not. Well, it was only harmonized to the directives. Yeah. So right. the uh, medical device directive, active implantable medical device directive, and the IVD directive could all be addressed through uh, the 2012 version. And with the withdrawal, I'm not sure of the status, but certainly I'm assuming that they will accept that through the uh, transition period for those devices. Uh, yeah. As far as uh, the UK, I haven't a clue. Yeah, well, I mean, as I often talk about Europe, it's kind of a hot mess right now, and you throw in the UK, and and it's still there's still some some dust to settle for sure. Um, I think the other thing that's important, uh, and, and you briefly mentioned this as well, the uh, impending uh, new uh, Z annexes that that we're anticipating from uh, the EU that elaborates further on EU MDR and EU IVDR that will be uh, companion to the 14971 standard. I think that's important for people to realize. And, and if folks, if you haven't read uh, the EU MDR regulations uh, and or the IVDR regulations, uh, you should do so. Um, well, they're much more, just the length of those uh, regulations is substantially more than what was in the previous directives. But there's also a theme that you'll pick up on really, really quickly uh, if you read through these. And risk management is pervasive throughout these regulations, way more so than than the previous directives. And, you know, as I read, I, I read regulations for fun. I know that's a weird thing to do, but but it's it's what I do for a living. So um, there, I, I found the MDR and IVDR and 14971, they're very cohesive. They're very much aligned with one another. So that's also extremely encouraging as well. But uh, I think that's really important for people to realize that, uh, you know, the U.S., FDA, we don't necessarily have a lot of guidance. And, you know, as far as uh, information about risk management, I mean, 14971 is your go-to place. And 24971, those, these are your go-to standards. So um, risk is, is, is going to continue to be a hot topic for, for our industry for a long, long time, for maybe for a lot of obvious reasons. Um, but I had a question for you or a comment, maybe more so first, but one one of the things I found really interesting about the twenty four nine seven one guidance is there is a whole uh, section that talks about IVDR. What was the rationale or thinking behind that? Well, actually, the original I think even in the two thousand edition we had guidance on the IVDs in the the standard. So it's appeared in the standard every time, um, and that 
particular uh, clause because the uh, standard applies to all medical devices, including IVDs, that we needed some particular guidance on the application uh, of the standard to IVDs. And so um, a couple of members of uh, ISO TC212, who is the uh, IVD standards group, uh, wrote that uh, that uh, section, and it's been revised. In fact, everything in 24971 has been revised. So there, all the guidance that appeared in the 2007 edition that was transferred to the uh, 2020 version of the uh, technical report, that's all been updated. Uh, every, so um, everybody needs to get that document and go through it and find uh, yeah. the sections that were updated. Um, just like my first article on uh, med device online was on the risk acceptability criteria and risk policy. There's a whole bunch of stuff in there on that, uh, even some examples. Um, and we did a lot of that in the in the new uh, 24971. We tried to put examples in where we could to show you what something might look like, not that it has to look this way. It's just like uh, people have said that uh, probability P1 and P2, we got to do that. No, you don't. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. I hear that all the time. I'm like, ah, really? Come on, that's, folks. That's just we did that originally to explain how you got from a fault to harm. Because just because you've had a failure doesn't 100% of the time mean somebody's going to be harmed. Okay. So there's steps that have to occur along the way. And the probability of harm occurring is going to be much lower than the probability that the fault has occurred. Right. So we we invented P1 and P2 as part of the explanatory explanatory process on how you got from one to the other. And people said, oh, we got to do that. No, you don't have to. Yeah. In fact, uh, there's even some examples in the new uh, 24971 that talk about eight or 10 Ps along the line. So, right, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, 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 I mean, and my my take on that is, it, it, to your point, it's explanatory, it's conceptual, it's to get folks thinking about this in, in the right frame of mind um, more so than it. Because I think uh, this is one of the things that, that just frustrates me at times uh, to no end uh, when we talk about risk management is some. I think people miss the point. Uh, I think they, they get so caught up in the minutia of assigning a score to uh, you know severity and and, a, and a occurrence and that sort of thing, that that's they they get so in the weeds on this that they miss the point of what risk management is supposed to do. Well, you brought up another topic that uh, I really like is is uh, assigning a quote unquote score. First of all, uh, severity uh, is qualitative; it is not quantitative. We don't assign a numerical value to death or serious injury or minor injury not requiring medical intervention, whatever terminology you use. Those are all qualitative. Uh, probabilities can be quantitative if you have confidence in the data that you have to support that. Yeah. And in the development of a brand new product, you are not going to have sufficient data to support quantitative values until you expose the, the device to human beings, um, sometimes in design validation, but more often 
um, after the product is released. So I would caution you against trying to come up with some uh, numbers just because you think you have to have scores that are numerical in value. They're not required to be numerical. We go to great lengths in the uh, technical report talking about quantitative uh, values and qualitative values. And um, uh, the idea being use qualitative all the way until you have confidence in your data, then you can assign numerical values. The other thing is in severity, I would rely on your medical professionals, uh, your clinical uh, support team to assign those severities. Do not allow engineers to assign severity. <laughs> Amen. Because I mean, I, I'm engineer guilty. Uh, engineers have very creative ways to identify death as a possibility for, for really benign things sometimes. So totally agree. Get the healthcare professionals, the clinicians uh, involved in that process in some way, shape or form. I mean, engineers are really creative at thinking about all the interesting ways that something can break or fail or cause a problem. And and that's good. It's a good part of the process. But uh, uh, this needs. I think the point that that I want folks to hear from this is, risk management is a cross-functional, cross-disciplinary activity that uh, you know needs to be looked at from a, a number of different perspectives. It should not just be the engineer's voice. Nothing against engineers. Like I said, I am one. So, uh, but just realize this this requires a, a lot of different lenses and areas of expertise and, and perspectives. And as as we wrap up today, the conversation, I, and I know we're just barely skimming uh, the surface on this this important topic of, of product risk management for the medical device industry. Is there one? And this might be hard, so I'll, I'll give you a moment to kind of think about. It, but is there one key tip or pointer or piece of advice that you'd like to leave listeners with uh, on this episode? I think the the one thing I can say is read the complete standard. That is the introduction, the forward, the scope, and the rationale in Annex A. If you don't read those, you don't have a complete understanding of risk management as a yeah. life cycle standard. So if there's one thing you could do to improve yourself is read that as well as the complete uh, 24971. Those documents together form the, the, uh, a more complete picture on risk management than we've ever had before. That's a great tip. And, and I'll add on to that. In addition to those, reading those two documents, I would highly encourage folks to read the EUMDR and the EUIVDR. Uh, even if those are not markets of interest for your products, I think when you read those requirements and those regulations, you're going to get a, a, you know, a, a different perspective on risk that, that is additive and complementary to 14971 and 24971. But you'll also very quickly pick up the importance and emphasis on the post-market surveillance and post-market clinical follow-up and all of those sorts of things that that uh, is important from a risk perspective, as as Ed shared uh, earlier today. You know, the the total product lifecycle is is key for your risk management activities, and there's a ton of emphasis on that in EUMDR and IVDR. And I I'm not I, I, maybe this is a prediction. Uh, but I think, you know, from an FDA perspective, that is an expectation as well and that we're, you know, doing a much better job at, at the post-market surveillance 
uh, with respect to risk. So Ed, thank you so much for taking time uh, to, to chat with me today about risk management. I, I hope we do this again real soon. And folks, thank you so much for listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast, the number one podcast in the medical device industry. As I mentioned before, if you need a little bit of help with your quality management system, including uh, navigating risk management, go to www.greenlight.guru. We'd be happy to help you. And as always, this is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.